Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. It is getting harder and harder to tell the real thing from the fake thing. They're getting really good with the fakes. Have you noticed this? Like, just culture, uh, all throughout culture, um, video, audio, pictures, film, whatever, like all these things, it's, it's getting very hard to tell what's real and what's fake. And, and this has been going on for a while. We've had things called fake news for a while, right, where, where politicians are lying to us or journalists are lying to us or whatever. Like there's stuff going on and it's been going on for a while. And we're like, man, is that, did that really happen? And funny saying this after April 1st, I don't know, did anybody get fooled yesterday? I got fooled one time and then after that I figured out what day it was and like, you know, that, that whole thing. Because there's a lot of fake stuff out there. And then there are this, um, these deep fakes. I don't know if you've seen this, but with the, even within the last three months, this has gotten a little crazier. They now have the, there's now the technology available that uh, they can listen to your voice for three seconds and then imitate your voice in a whole conversation. So, so you could talk on the phone for three seconds, then someone could call back sounding like you. And convinc- convincingly, too. Like, that's, that's a little bit like, cool slash terrifying, like you've probably seen the video floating around with, where they've done this with Biden's voice where they have him saying all these things they didn't necessarily say. It's hard to tell what that guy's saying anyway, but um, so th- this is real and it is very convincing. The, the fakes are getting very convincing and it's, it's odd. And then there's this whole chat GPT thing that's going on with that. Has anybody played around with that yet? Anybody written a school report with that? Um, anybody like filled out the resume with that? Has anybody written a novel yet um, with that? Like it's this is weird, and, and I've been following it a little bit and trying to read up on it and listen to what people are saying in culture and people who are in Silicon Valley and what are they saying about what's happening with AI and stuff. And um, Not everything, like I would say 80 to 90% of the things that we freak out about from day to day or that we're told in the news to freak out about don't come true and probably aren't worth freaking out about. And maybe this is one of those things. I don't know. But it's odd that there's been this like, oh, chat, cheap is kind of fun. I can like put it in there and it'll give me, like, I can write this essay or I can, I had a friend tell me he wrote a reference for someone when they left work. He wrote a reference using that. I'm like, that's, that's kind of cool, but, you know, ChatGP can write my report and it can write this reference. It can write my sermon. You know, that's kind of nice, I guess. Um, but, but where is that going? You know, is it going to be like, you know, ChatGPT is now my spouse and Chat, you know, like ChatGPT has now torched the sky and forced humanity to live underground and has been renamed as Skynet. Like, this is where I'm concerned it goes. Uh, it, like, this is not good. Like, is anyone watching what's going on here? My wife said this to me this week. We've had this conversation recently. She was pointing out, she's like, you know, in the Hunger Games, you know, like the central city, those were the bad people. Or why, why is everyone trying to become like them? Like, why didn't we notice those were the bad guys in the story? And like, here we are, like slowly headed that way. Like, it's very odd. And I'm, and I'm concerned about the, the things that are fake versus the things that are real. I'm concerned that we're losing track or losing a sense of the real stuff, the good stuff, because there is so much real and so much good to be had. There are real relationships to be in. There's real intimacy with people to have. There's real food to eat. There's real joy that we can have. 
And I don't want us to settle for, and I'm concerned about myself or my family or anyone, any of us settling for uh, fake substitutes. And it's getting hard to tell the real from the fake. So I bring all this up because we're going to talk this week about the last week of Jesus' life. And what I want to tell you is the real story that happened about a real person, Jesus Christ, uh, who lived in the real world, that, that, you know, this world that we live in, he lived in the real world in the first century. And I want to talk about things that I believe are real and true, and, and they actually happened. And, and I want to get into some of the details of that. And, and as I talk about some of these things, um, I think you're going to find them a little bit hard to believe when you talk about the, this, we were just singing about the grave that didn't hold him down, the idea that Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? That he came back from the dead, like rose from the dead. That is very difficult for us to accept as real. We hear that and we go, that's got to be fake, right? Like that didn't actually happen in the real world. But to be fair, a lot of things we don't believe are real anymore. So maybe, maybe our skepticism is actually just a little bit a part of that. So we're going to jump into it. I'm going to read to you in just a moment. I'm going to read to you from John. There are four gospel writers, four writers in the New Testament who wrote, who took time to write down some sort of biography of Jesus' life from kind of four different angles. They're just talking about different things that Jesus did. And, and they wrote all this down so that people later could understand, hey, here's who Jesus was. This is what he did. And if you read these, these biographies, these four gospels written in the first century, if you read them and you compare them to anything else written in the ancient world around that time, if you go back to like Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad and, and things roughly in the same couple hundred years around that time, if you go back to things like that, you will find that the gospel writings about Jesus are so, so different than any other writing in the ancient world. They just sound different. They just cover different kinds of details, the, the way they go into things, and they, they actually read as authentic. They read like they have the marks on them of this is real stuff. This is not fake news. What I mean by that is a lot of times the gospel writers include details that don't matter. And they don't, and we're, we're used to reading writing of, that has lots of details that don't matter. If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, it's like 800 pages of details that don't matter and a, and a little bit of story in there. Like we're used to that kind of writing. They did not do that in the ancient world. So for the gospel writers to come along and add details that don't seem to matter, that's a mark of authenticity. They're just saying this is what happened. Not that it matters every little bit. Or, as, as you'll see even today, the gospel writers write things that make the disciples look bad. And the gospel writers are writing during a time period after Jesus' life where the disciples, who are Jesus' closest followers, they're leading the church. So these writers are writing things that, the current leaders, that make the current leaders of the church look bad. If you're trying to make up a story, if you're going to do some fake news, you're not going to make the disciples look bad. But over and over in the Gospels, you see that the disciples look not quite smart enough or like they're not quite getting it. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, the book of John, the Gospel writer John, about half of the entire book is devoted to just this one week of Jesus' life. So it's a, it's a big deal. John spends a lot of time talking about this because it was very significant. And he wants to record and get the details accurately, and he covers some details that the other gospel writers had not covered because he was the last of the gospel writers to write. And in John 12, uh, he talks about 
this final week of Jesus' life where Jesus enters Jerusalem. I want to read to you, and then we're going to cover a couple of details in it because this will sound a little weird to us. This is read and celebrated all across the world today um, on, on the Sunday before Easter called Palm Sunday, and this is why it's from this story. John 12 says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, there's a lot of things in that that are foreign to us. This is Passover week. And for the Israelites, Passover was a remembrance celebration of the Exodus when they left Exodus as slaves some 1,400 years prior to that. So they're celebrating every year they'd come together and do this Passover celebration, and all of Israel would come to Jerusalem. So you've got a lot of people in from out of town, sort of tent camping. Uh, It's very crowded. There's a lot of people there in the city to celebrate Passover. And the way you celebrated Passover, you remember how God delivered the people from Egypt. And the way you would celebrate is you would bring a lamb that with you and you'd bring it to the priest and the priest would slaughter that lamb and sacrifice the lamb at the temple right there on the, on the mountain, on the hill in Jerusalem. And, and so um, it was very gross. Thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs being slaughtered, blood just running ankle deep down off the side of the temple. Like it is, it is a gross um, animal sacrifice week, but a big celebration that goes, along, goes on all week where the, where, where the Israelites would remember how God had delivered them. So that's all weird and a little foreign to us. We, we, you know, that's not our culture. Um, but just before Jesus gets into Jerusalem on that Sunday, going into that week, he uh, sees his friend Lazarus, and his friend Lazarus has died, and he raises him from the dead, brings him back from the dead. He cries. It's a, it's a powerful scene. Um, and as you might imagine, when somebody brings somebody else back from the dead, this causes quite a stir. Like, people are like, what just happened? And, and the whole crowd and, and the news is scattering word of mouth, right, throughout the region. Like, yo, this guy just brought, Lazarus was very dead, multiple days dead. Not just like he had felt sick and laid down for a minute, but he had been dead for days. And Jesus just brought him back from the dead. And so Jesus comes in and riding on a donkey, and they wave palm branches at him. There's, if you've been to that part of the world in, in, around Jerusalem, it's, it's, it's a pretty dry climate. It, it, uh, I got to go. It reminded me of, I don't know, Southern California, kind of. Um, and there's palm trees around, and so people grab palm branches, and uh, they, they wave, him at, at, wave them at him. And I, I, I looked this up because we don't wave palm branches at people. So that's kind of a weird thing. Uh, palm branches in the ancient world would symbolize goodness. Uh, it would symbolize victory. Um, and so when you wave them or you lay them down in front of Jesus, they're basically saying, you are the one who will bring us the victory or you bring goodness. Um, and, and there was a lot of hope from the Israelites, the people in that culture. There was a lot of hope that there would be a Savior that would come save them from the oppressive Romans who were ruling over them. In fact, they say the word Hosanna to him as he comes in. As he's coming in, they wave the branch. They say Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save us or bring us freedom. And it was actually a rallying cry of Jewish nationalists of the day. It was, it was, the, it was, it was a word that would sort of represent, hey, like, kick out the Romans, 
liberate us so we can be free, that, that kind of thing. And so you've got some people who are saying that sort of thing, and they're, they're pinning all of their hopes for liberation and salvation and, and, and victory. They're pinning all of that on Jesus as he comes in, um, into the city. They're referring to him as a king, and they acknowledge that Jesus has got something powerful going on. Um, they've, they've heard about him, you know, raising someone from the dead. They're like, okay, this is the guy that we have been uh, waiting for. Um, and so in this crowd, I, I think you, you have people who, um, who love him, who honor Jesus, who want to worship him. They, they, they are all in on Jesus. They're like, this is the guy. We're, we think he's amazing. And they love him for who he is, or they love him for what they think he can do for them, right? Which is a mixed motive at best, right? I love you, but really I love you because you make me feel good. Or I love you because of what you can do for me. And there's a little bit of that as well. And, and actually, I think there's a lot of us in this, in this crowd today that would fit into that crowd. Like, there's those of us who, maybe that's where you're at today. You, you follow Jesus. You honor Jesus. You love Jesus. You worship Jesus. You're here at church to do that very thing. And you're going to honor him this week. And you're going to sing the songs. And you're going to take the communion. You're going to be like, yes, I'm, I'm in on Jesus. But maybe... You're in on Jesus because you have mixed motives. Maybe you're sort of like, uh, I, I, I love him, but I kind of love what he can do for me. Like, he can help me. Um, and, I, and I get that. I, I, I understand that. Some, sometimes in every relationship that we're in, sometimes we have mixed motives about it. Now, not everybody in the crowd loved and worshipped him in that moment. Okay? Uh, it, was, it was a diverse crowd. Some people were just confused. In fact, look at this. Verse 16, the next verse. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So his closest followers were confused. Again, not making the disciples look good is one, one way you know that, that this bears the marks of authenticity. So the disciples are like, yeah, I don't know. What is going on? Why is everybody, what, what's all the fuss about? raving branches, this is just kind of an odd thing, and they're a little bit uh, confused. They, they didn't understand it until much later. And I think that's some of us today, too. Some of you, you hear about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, he's, you know, nailed to a cross and paid for our sins, and we'll talk about that this week, but you hear about that, and then you hear about the resurrection. Oh, he went into a grave, and then he came back from the dead, because ain't no grave going to hold him down, and we, we sing these things, and we hear these things, but for some of us, we're just a little bit confused. We're like, I mean, I guess, like, that's, that's great, but like, what's all the fuss about? Because like, for us, in 2023 in America, I, I, I doubt you walked in here this morning going, man, I just hope that somebody died for me and rose from the dead, and I, and I hope that's what is true in the world. Like, for a lot of us, we walk in here and we go, I hope I can pay rent. I hope that she says yes when I ask her out. I hope that we can stay together. I hope that my kid turns out okay. I hope that I get into that school. I hope that, you know... I can stay healthy in this next season. Like, these are the things that are on our hearts and minds. And so this whole Jesus thing, you're like, yeah, I guess that may be true, but it's a little confusing to me, um, and, and I'm not sure it, it matters much. I mean, sure, the church is like, here's this old dead dude who died, and then he came back from the dead, and, and you're sitting there going, yeah, but, like, does it matter? I've got a lot going on right now. 
And I understand that. So in addition to a, a part of the crowd that loves him and honors him, there's part of the crowd that's just a little bit confused. And maybe that's you today. There's also another group here. Listen to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So here you have a group of people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're like going along like Jesus' posse. And they're like, oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. And they're all like, traveling around with him and making a big deal out of it. And they're like, this is the guy. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Isn't this incredible? And this whole group of people who saw it happen are making a big deal out of it. As they should, as you would too, okay? If somebody was brought in here from the morgue today and they rolled somebody in here like, this guy's been dead a week, you know, it's been very sad, a tragic thing happened, he's dead. And somebody got up and raised that person from the dead in the bird theater on a Sunday morning, you would mention that to a few people this week, right? You wouldn't like, oh, that's a thing. Now, what, what should we have for lunch? You'd be like, what just happened? Like, it would come up. You, I, in this day and age, you'd, you'd take a selfie. You would be up, you'd be right there, like, hashtag back from the dead. Like, whatever. Like, it would be a thing that you would talk about. And I understand that, right? Like, we would all do that. And that's the way they were, too. Lazarus was very dead. This guy came into town, raised him from the dead. I got to tell somebody about this. So there's a crowd that's all in. They're excited. They love this. And then there's another crowd, it mentions there, another group of people who are there to see the people who are all in. Like, whoa, what is all this fuss about? And I, and I think we can relate to a little bit of that as well. Some of you have had an experience with Jesus. You're convinced. Um, He's done something in your life. Like he's raised you from the dead. You were at the end of your rope when you found Jesus. He has healed you. He has saved you. He has saved relationships that you're in. He has brought you back from addiction. Like those stories are in this room right now. There are people who have gone through some hard stuff and have come out on the other side because Jesus intervened in their lives and they gave their life to him and it changed them fundamentally from the inside out. You are sitting next to people like that in this room right now. And so some of you are that. You're like, I can't help but talk about it because Jesus saved me. And some of you are like people who are here to see those people. Maybe they invited you to come to church, like Jesus made a big deal in my life, will you come to church with me? And you're sitting here right now because they invited you and maybe you're a little bit skeptical. You're like, or, or you're just sitting here watching and going, is that really true? Did it really happen? Did he really free you from addiction? Are you no longer an alcoholic? Have you, are you free from porn? Is your relationship better? Are you healthier? And is there something different about you? Is this really happened? Does Jesus really matter? And you're sitting there asking that question and wondering, and, and you're part of that crowd as well, and you're wondering if this whole thing is real. And maybe the reason you're skeptical is you got a lot that you're going through. Um, the, the, you, you, have, you have your uh, pain, your, your pain points. Um, there's this stuff going on, and, and it's a struggle for you. Um, and I get that. But so, so I would say these are all just the people that are, that are in the crowd right now. Um, and and I, in fact, I think there's one more group. Look at the next verse. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So there is a religious group of people 
in the crowd. The Pharisees are the, the, the religious leaders of the Jews. And they're looking at this happen with Jesus coming in and people waving branches and all that. And they're seeing the mob form. They're seeing the crowd, the adoring fans of Jesus. They're seeing this happen. And they're sitting there going, oh, um, hey, guys, we're not a big deal anymore. Like, if you, like everybody's going after him. It's not us anymore. And they are some of the most threatened by Jesus in, in this crowd. They're threatened by him because he's going to threaten their hold on authority and power over the people. They, they do the Jewish game, and the Jewish system is there are laws, follow the laws perfectly. The more perfectly you follow them, the higher up you can go. And so the Pharisees and other religious leaders of that group, they are the people who follow the laws the best, so they get to go to the highest ranks of power, and they get to tell everybody else, you're not following Jesus well enough, or you're not following God well enough, and all, they're doing that kind of thing. And so they're doing this power thing, and Jesus comes along and effectively is saying, um, you guys are playing the wrong game. Like, this is not the way to be in relationship with God. You need to know me and, and know my Father through faith, and, and there's this whole concept of grace and all these other things. They're not playing that game, so they are the ones most threatened by Jesus showing up. They don't, they don't, uh, and, and they don't like it, and, and they're actually envious of him. In fact, Matthew and Mark, two other gospel writers, they will specifically say in their accounts, later uh, in, in the story, they will specifically say that the reason Jesus was crucified is because these people were envious of him. So there's a lot of envy, a lot of jealousy go, going on. Um, and, and for some of us, I think, as we, as we think about this today, as you think about this story, um, we have some antagonism, I think, towards, towards this whole thing. Um, we don't want it. We don't want the Jesus story. Not because we're envious, I don't think that's the case for most people in our culture, in our worldview. I think mostly uh, we don't want the Jesus thing because it might displace what we already have going on. Like, I have a certain way, if you're, if you're a, sort of a modern American, you have a certain worldview, a certain way of thinking about what is good and bad and what is right and wrong, what is true, and, and how I should raise kids and what dating should look like. And you have thoughts about money and power and sex and justice and, and all of the things in life. You have thoughts on those things. And Jesus comes along, and if you really take him seriously, he will displace your thoughts on those things. He will challenge your worldview on those things. And there are things Jesus will teach and say that you just won't like you're not going to like them because they're not American enough sounding to you. They don't sound enough like your friends, like your professors, like your teachers, like what your parents said. They're just different. And this is true for all of us. We all have to wrestle with this. Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we have to sit there and go, is that right? Or am I going to just go figure this out on my own and come up with my own way and my own truth? And so, honestly, the truth is, for a chunk of us, we... we like the idea of Jesus being this nice, kind, good healer thing, but, but when we actually look at what he says and what he does, we don't really want it because it's going to mess with what we already believe about the world. And that might make us a little bit antagonistic to this whole story. Like, is it true or not? I don't care. I don't want it to be true. That's honestly where some of us are. So maybe you see yourself in that crowd. Maybe you see yourself as antagonistic, or maybe you're confused, or maybe you're worshiping Jesus, honoring him. As you sit here on a Palm Sunday, maybe you are any of those people in the crowd in some way. But here's what I think 
all of us are in the crowd in some way. I think we're this. We're conflicted. All of us are probably a little bit conflicted. Like we want to believe in this stuff, but we struggle. We want to live by faith, but we get discouraged. We want to be antagonistic even, but even in that, we have some doubts. And it's like there's a little bit of a war going on inside of us where we struggle between really getting it and kind of getting it or wanting to get it or wanting to want to or something like that. There's this little war going on inside of us, and we are conflicted. Fortunately, there's a great example of somebody else who felt the same way. In Mark chapter 9, one of the other gospel writers, you may have heard this story before. I just want to read it to you. This guy comes to Jesus with a significant problem with his kid. And, uh, man, problems with your kids will drive you to Jesus. And it, 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 it does in this case. Listen, not Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, we hear that, and if, if you have any sort of medical, you sort of go, uh, that sounds like an epileptic seizure, right? We would, have, we would put a medical diagnosis on that. Um, Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I, I read that almost like, oh, guys, do we, are we still doing this? You know, um, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So imagine this guy, there's a crowd, this guy brings his son, this is, explains this what's been going on. He comes up to Jesus, the boy falls down, starts foaming at the mouth, convulsing, which would cause quite a scene, right? So you can imagine this boy foaming at the mouth, convulsing. And I, I, I picture Jesus sort of very calmly, almost like a doctor at the bedside with good bedside manner, very calmly speaking to the father while this kid's convulsing. And Jesus says this, um, and, Jesus asked, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? It's a very doctor question to ask, right? How long have you been experiencing symptoms? How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This guy is motivated by something we would all be motivated by. He loves his kid, and he wants his kid to be well. I, I, I find that to be highly relatable from the littlest to the biggest kids. You want them to be well, and you care, and there's a lot of love there. And so that drives him to Jesus. He wants his kid to be well, and so he goes to him, and, and, he, and he says, basically he's probably heard about Jesus doing miracles and stuff, and he says, hey, if you can help us. And that kind of lets that slip out, right? Um, and Jesus is like, what do you mean, if I can help you? Like, you know I've done miracles. You know all of these things. And then immediately, the verse 24 again, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
I'm in, but I'm not all the way in. I, I get it, but I don't get it. I believe, but I struggle. I, I'm, I love this, but I've got doubts. And man, is that not the most relatable thing in the whole world? Isn't that where we are? Yeah, I, I, yay, Jesus. I mean, kind of. I'm in on God, I, I think. I, 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 I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I don't always feel him in my life. Like, that's so relatable. That is all of us at some point. I think it's just so honest. I want to believe, but, and maybe you're that way too. You're like, I want to believe in this God stuff, but honestly, Jesus' followers suck a little bit, and I'm a little, they're kind of, I'm kind of over them, so I struggle. I want to believe, but the supernatural stuff is really weird because I'm a person of science, and I believe in science, and, that, and so I, I, I don't know that I believe in all of that stuff that seems kind of magical. Um, I want to believe, and here's an honest one, I want to believe, but I've been very hurt and very disappointed, and I'd rather not believe in a God than believe in a God who exists, who saw what I went through and let me go through it anyway and didn't intervene or help. I just would rather not believe in a God who would allow me to hurt like I have. I get it. There are many reasons to believe in God, I think. And there are also many reasons to doubt. There are spiritual pains and emotional and intellectual. And so we end up being very conflicted. And maybe you feel conflicted today. It's understandable. There was a school shooting this week. Where, where was God? Why doesn't God intervene in situations like that? Your spouse wants to leave. Where is God? Why doesn't he see that and help? You have bills to pay that you can't. Why doesn't God see that and help? Your kid's going off the rails. Why doesn't God see that and help? I think it's okay to be conflicted. And, and actually the point I wanted to get across in all of this is, is, is simply this. It is okay to be conflicted. And, you know, not that you need my permission, but you have my permission to be conflicted about all of this. Because on Friday, we're going to gather here and talk about the crucifixion and how somehow Jesus dying on a cross pays for your sins, even though you weren't there. It, it makes something right between you and God. And, and then we're going to talk about on Sunday how somehow Jesus died and then came back from the dead. And I understand that those things are odd and they're hard to believe in. Um, so you have my permission to be conflicted. Why? Because doubts are actually healthy. I welcome the doubts here. Doubts are healthy. They are a necessary part of faith. You have to have some doubts when you have faith or you don't have faith. You have certainty. We're not, we're not, we're not commended by Jesus for having certainty. We're commended by Jesus for living by faith. And so it is okay to have doubts. Doubts make you poke and prod and ask more questions and learn and grow. That's where you get to a lot of the good stuff. A lot of levels of development and growth and learning come from having doubts. Doubts can get you to the truth, and they can get you to faith. And this is a great thing. So if you feel conflicted, if you're like, I believe, but help my unbelief, I, I just want to say, welcome to church. This is, this is how it is. This is the journey that we're all on. Uh, we're all here full of faith and full of doubts, sometimes in the same day and at the same moment, and that's an okay thing. But as we, as we have doubts, 
we need to be careful in the culture that we live in not to have all the doubts all the time. Leslie Newbegin uh, was a missionary to India from Scotland. He wrote some really good stuff, um, and in the mid-90s wrote this book, Proper Confidence. Excellent book, short book, um, and it's a lot about doubt and faith and certainty. And in there he says this. He says, if one doubts everything, one learns nothing. You can have doubts, but as soon as you start doubting everything, you're not going to learn anything anymore. You won't believe anything at all. So we have to be careful in our doubting to not be completely all skeptical. Let's be honest. It's, it's pretty cool to be skeptical in our culture. Like it's, it's cool to be skeptical and a little cynical and kind of unattached. Um, because if, you, if you're ambitious and you care too much, you'll be called like a tryhard or whatever the teens say these days. Uh, if you know, you would try hard, you'll be, you'll be cringe because you, you actually care, you're emotional, or you're passionate about something. And so it's just a lot cooler to like sort of act like you don't care about anything and you're not attached and you're a little bit slightly cynical. Um, and I understand why we do that, but my challenge is don't give in to that. Don't give in to it. Um, it's, not, it's not healthy for us. We can't doubt everything. Uh, we, we actually have to, um, to, to be able to see the truth clearly. Um, you know, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who, who pointed out, if you see through everything, it's like seeing nothing, basically. The point of seeing through windows so you can see the landscape that's on the other side, not to be able to see through that as well. And so doubt and skepticism as a constant is not good and healthy for us. So that's it. Welcome to church. We all have our doubts. We are a little bit conflicted at times. Um, but let me encourage you as we, as we do this Holy Week, as we gather on Friday for Good Friday over here at 2810, and as we gather next Sunday on Easter Sunday, and I, and I hope you can be here and bring a friend with you, um, be open. Be open again. Um, don't let skepticism and doubt and pain and all of the things uh, drive you into that dark place, but be open to the real story of what really happened in the real world to a really a guy named Jesus and the real implications that it has for our lives today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gospel writers writing this down so that we can know and understand what Jesus did that final week. God, all of us are in the crowd on Palm Sunday in some way. We're all um, lining up to wave that branch to, to, to honor Jesus or we're lining up to watch the people who are waving the branch and kind of wondering what's going on with them, or we're coming with hope for a healing for our, for our kids, for ourselves. We're, we're, we're coming to you like, if you can fix this, if you can help. Um, we're all in there somewhere, Lord. And so I pray you meet us in every spot that we're at this week and that we stay open this week to what you're going to do, that you, um, you show up for us and to us in, in a real way this week so that we come out of this um, a week from now maybe a little more convinced that you are, you are real, that Jesus is real, and that there is hope and future for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.